Isaiah 33, give your full attention to the reading of God's perfect word. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of the rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold fast the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Renew my life according to your word. Amen. What would it take to look over the horizon of your life with confidence? 
to know that whatever comes, you're going to be fine. Sometimes trouble comes out of nowhere, takes you by surprise. Sometimes you can see it coming, the storm clouds gathering off in the distance. And what I'm asking this morning is, what would it take for it not to matter? Whether you have time to prepare or not, whether your enemy is from without or within, what would it take for you to look out over the horizon with confidence? Isaiah offers an answer. In sports, there's a lot of talk about mojo, an undefinable, near magical quality that reinforces success. Winners think they're going to win. In philosophy, I'm sorry, in business, they often quote the philosopher William Durant, success breeds success. We're told that self-confidence and self-assurance are self-fulfilling. If you want to be confident, think confidently. From that perspective, Assyria has good reason to be confident. They're winning. No earthly power has proven their equal. Israel's northern kingdom has fallen, and Judah's fall is inevitable. King Hezekiah's efforts at finding protection in Egypt have failed. And now he's just sending out wagon loads of money and treasure from Judah to see if he can bribe Sennacherib to go away. The material blessings that God had given his own people are handed over to a pagan military leader because they can't think of anything else they could do. Don't you think Assyria is feeling some pretty serious mojo at this point? Winners are winning. That's why, even once they receive the bribe, they don't hesitate for a moment to double-cross Hezekiah and attack Jerusalem anyway. Some people, perhaps some of us, think that this kind of scene is the answer to my earlier question. This is the kind of life required to look over the horizon with confidence. When no one can stop me, when I have more than I need, when I'm feared and respected, that's when I can be at peace, when I'm a winner. Because it's the winners who win. But if that's your answer, you should find verse 1 puzzling. Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. This is the last of the six woes of this section in Isaiah. And this is the only one of those woes that is not directed at God's own people. Five times now, God has issued covenantal curses against the faithlessness of his people. But this one is directed against Sennacherib. This promise of judgment is for the betrayer of Judah. And what made the difference? Why did things turn where all of a sudden Judah, experiencing God's wrath, sees that wrath turned on her enemies? What made 
the difference. Now this morning's going to be tricky because the answer, I suspect, both is and is not what you'd expect. And if you tune out the is not because you're so familiar with the is, you'll miss the point. It is what you'd expect because we read in verse 2 that God's people have finally called out to him. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Yes, God's people are finally entering into repentance and calling out to him for help. That is why God will act. That is how we can look over the horizon with confidence. But... And this is key. They don't do this as winners. They do this as failures. Just moments ago, they put their trust in Egypt. And the moment after that, they put their trust in drive, bribes. They aren't turning to God because their faith is strong and they know he will deliver him. They're turning to God because they have absolutely nowhere else to turn. One historian writes, they've been double-crossed. Assyria plans to attack anyway. And only then does Judah finally realize they have nothing left but the grace of God. Now again, part of this is nothing new for you. We see in verses 2 through 4 that in times of trouble, God's people should call out to God in prayer. We need to pray that God would deliver us as he promised. In Judah, as we know from First Kings and other places in Scripture, it's not like this was a large group who repented and prayed. This was a small, faithful remnant that lifted their voices to God in repentance and faith. But even a few is enough. It was enough for God to answer with curses and disaster for Sennacherib and Assyria. It was enough to change the tide. Notice how quickly in verse 2, they're able to look up to God in confidence. And so in verse 3, they're able to look out over the nations of the world with the same confidence. Their perspective of the future changed entirely because they looked up to God in faith. But there's a part of this that might be new for you. Because when we read a story like this, I suspect we imagine the faith of this remnant as being something far more impressive, far more certain than what we possess. But I love how one pastor answers the question, what does Judah's repentance sound like? He says, it sounds like them saying, the only thing between us and disaster is you, Lord. That's it. The only thing they're confident in at this point is that it would take a miracle to save them. They're not thinking like winners. They have no mojo here. They've got absolutely nowhere else to turn because they have turned everywhere else and none of it has worked. They've tried every single thing they could keep of that would keep them from having to actually turn to God and here they are. And all they know now is that they need a miracle. And by faith, that pastor concludes, the miracle is becoming theirs. Judah had no cause for mojo. Things are bad in Judah right now. That's verses 7 through 9. This is the result of God's people working out their own plans, turning everywhere else, trusting in themselves, uh, like Assyria in many ways. They look confidently over the horizon because of their own strength. 
But that strength for Judah is now long gone. Verse 9 describes the disaster that's present in every part and every corner of the promised land. Yeah, there'd been some prosperous times, but ultimately there's always misery in the places we turn away from God. And that's why, and this is critical, that, that disaster, that failure, that hopelessness, that is why the people finally turn back to God in repentance. It's God or nothing because there is nothing else left. I want to read a paragraph from one of my commentaries that I think is just great on this because I really think we get this wrong. I think our expectations about what's happening in the heart of repentant people is wrong. He says God's people were turning back to him not as their great fountain of all good, but as their last resort. Repentance was the last-ditch effort to stave off disaster. But God humbly received them anyway. When we are defeated, downcast, disgraced, broken, and so disappointed with ourselves and what we've done with our lives, that is when God enters in. How do we apply that? Never outgrow the humility of brokenness before God. In becoming a Christian, we admitted that our whole lives had been wrong. And as we grow in Christ, we need to never leave that realism behind. Your sin is God's moment. Verse 6 promises that God will be the stability of our time. I think we know that. I think we may even believe that for someone else. For someone with a little more faith. For someone with a more consistent walk with Jesus. For someone who's not a failure. Is that what you think? God helps those with mojo consolation of God's promises in this section are remarkable. He will save his people. He will persevere his church. We're to cast aside our unbelief and look to faith in God. We're to return to him and repent of our foolish pride. And when we do, God will answer with promises so rich that neither the clouds over the horizon nor the unexpected calamity can undo us. But this turning to him is not the confidence response of people who are winning. Confidence in God does not begin with people who look confident to the world. It's out of our failures. We look up to God in shame and hopelessness. It's out of our misery. We turn an eye up to him to see if he's even there. The remnant in Judah didn't begin by coming boldly before the throne of grace, praising the mercies of their blessed Savior. They effectively said, well, it's this or death. <clears throat> I remember a guy who, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And you know how the story ends. I heard it said once that God is more ready to meet with us than we are to meet with him. The mess we've made of our lives is the very place where God meets us afresh. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your failure, your mess, your unbelief, your doubting, your disobedience, that these do not disqualify you from the opportunity to return to God in repentance and faith? Or do you think, as so many do, that you need to get your act together first? That you need to make yourself worthy of God's forgiveness and love before he'll receive you? Many, many people, especially many raised around Christianity, think the latter. By default, we're all inclined to think it. But the truth is just the opposite. It's coming to the end of ourselves, seeing our failure as failure that most often makes us ready to turn to God. And when we turn to God, not as mojo-carrying winners, when we turn to God as humbled and broken failures, he will lift us up. In verses 10 to 12, because of the literally pitiful prayers of the remnant, God acts, now I will arise. Syria has mojo. That does you no good when God springs to action. In fact, all that self-confidence can only work against you. Assyria will be consumed not by Judah's armies or treaties or bribes, but by an undeniable miracle. And Sennacherib, this proud, boastful leader, he'll be murdered in the temple of the very deity that he said would overthrow Yahweh. Like thorns cut down that are burned in a fire. In the rest of this chapter, we read of the blessing that comes to those who fear the Lord. Not the blessing for winners, not success breeding success. Blessing for the humbled and repentant sinners who turn to God in all their unworthiness and walk with him by the Spirit. If you ever want to look over the horizon of life with confidence, this is the only way to do it. If you ever want to feel what real Full acceptance, unconditional love, infinite forgiveness feels like this is the only way to do it. God's promises to his people stand in stark contrast to our perception of reality. Judah's told here not to fear Assyria. The problem isn't even solved yet. The kingdom is still in shambles. The Assyrian army is still at the gates of Jerusalem and they're told not to fear Assyria, that God will destroy them and protect his people. And just looking around, that doesn't seem likely. It's from the revival that God works in our hearts that we see things differently. He gives us a new lens through which life can be understood. Kids, not many of you guys wear glasses or contacts. I know some of you do. My vision was never very bad, but my prescription's pretty weak, but I've needed it since the eighth grade. I've needed help with my vision. 
And since my vision wasn't very bad, it took me a long time to understand that I needed glasses at all. I thought I was seeing things pretty clearly. But then at the eye doctor, I can still remember the exact moment. You, you put your chin in that giant uncomfortable contraption and he starts flipping around the glass lenses. And all of a sudden, the world, which I thought had been in focus, became in real focus. I could see not just objects, but edges of objects. I could read without straining. What is the new lens that God gives his people? It's verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Looking over the horizon, first through the lens of their own mojo and later through the lens of their fears, Judah could not see rightly, but now they will. They will see the king in his beauty. That's how they'll see security and satisfaction for the future with such confidence that they'll taste of it and enjoy it even now. Judah, the kingdom, will not be safe. On the whole, they'll persist in unbelief. God's going to miraculously spare them from this Assyrian invasion. It's incredible. You can see here that Isaiah hopes that experience would would cause widespread revival. That when they see God's response, even to a few broken, weak Judeans, that the whole nation would be moved to repentance. But that's not what happens. And so it was not the nation that would be saved. It was just this tiny remnant, a remnant from which God would draw forth his church. God's church, we. Not really winners in the world's eyes, are we? but a band of self-acknowledged, messy failures to whom the promises are given by faith. We look over the horizon with confidence for no other reason than trust in God. And we do so because we found nowhere else to turn. It's not confidence that makes us confident. When it comes to eternal realities, mojo just doesn't cut it. No, it's the opposite. It's insecurity. It's unconfidence in ourselves, in our plans, and all the not-gods that we've turned to. I heard another pastor make the point by comparing the kinds of questions that are asked. Self-assured winners ask questions like, Why isn't God helping me? Don't I deserve it? Self-assured winners ask questions like, where will this following God get me in my life? What practical good is the word of God? But failures. When you think like a failure, when you're ready for God, when you see the king in his beauty, you start to ask questions like, why should God care about me at all? How can my life possibly be compatible with a holy God? And then you have new glasses through which to view the world. It doesn't begin with anything that sounds like winning. Because the author concludes, sin must be exposed and healed. Christ must become beautiful to us. Only then... It doesn't matter anymore what the world may do. Only then are we safe and rich in Christ. 
the outline of this whole chapter is built around that point. On one side of the text is God bringing us to the end of ourselves by showing us we're not winners, we're failures. We don't have enough, we can't offer enough, we can't do enough. And on the other side of the text is God bringing to us the beauty of Christ and showing us his glory. And in the middle, the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, the fear of the Lord as Zion's treasure. In the middle is peace and joy. The victory over Assyria isn't the main event. It's the mere preview of the movie God, through his victory of Jesus Christ, secured his people from death. And God, through the victory of Jesus Christ, will in his second coming burn up sin and curse with fire and make everything new. And that's why we look over the horizon with confidence. It's not because of anything we've done or will do. It's not because our lives have some sort of even Christian mojo. This passage tells us who God will accept. It tells us for whom these promises are true. And it's not him or her who, who, who have it of themselves. It's he and it's she who only by coming to the end of themselves cast themselves upon God and walk with him in righteousness and uprightness. Do you feel like a failure? then you're ready to walk with God. Verse 22, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. The boast is in God. He will save us. The failures. What right did these people have to presume on God's salvation? Oh, well, Paul, didn't you read verse 2? They turned to him in prayer. Yeah, didn't you read verse 1? Didn't you read the last 32 chapters? Whatever you think genuine repentance looks like, I bet it's less impressive. Whatever you think is the the pure heart that you're going to bring to God, there's no such thing. There's the pure heart that you walk away with. But you bring him nothing. You bring empty hands. In fact, you bring filthy hands. The very last phrase of the chapter, verse 24, it makes the point, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Do you know where else in the Bible that phrase is? Leviticus 16. It's the day of atonement. How are the people forgiven? Because they make a way for themselves? Because they earn or deserve it? Because they're winners? Because they muster up such sincerity and such a God-honoring life as to say, yes, Lord, I turn to you in repentance, entirely trusting it. No. It's because from the pile of ashes and dung that they've made out of their own lives, they dare to turn one eye toward God, the weakest of faith, the bruised reed that is nearly broken, the smoldering wick that is nearly extinguished. And the guilt that was laid upon us 
is laid upon another. Some of you, right now, and I know this because it's all of us from time to time, some of you right now are nearly collapsing under the weight of your own guilt and sin. (coughs) But the burden need not be on your shoulders. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The lesson of Isaiah 33 is not just that God will save. It's that it's never too late. And your part in salvation is far less impressive than you think. Imperfect repentance is the only kind you have to offer. And he provides for that. (laughs) Even by our feeble, half-hearted, utterly distracted Mustard seed of repentance and faith, even by that, he carries away our guilt forever. I know what we fear. We fear that God is like us. We fear that if we look up to God just because we have nowhere else to look, if we look up to God because we've tried everything else and it didn't work, that he will pour down on us ridicule or curses. That's what we would do. Winners despise losers, right? But that reaction is godless. And the one to whom we look is God. Looking up from the ash heap we've made of our lives, we call down not his judgment, but his mercy and his blessing. Look up. He will change you. Seeing the king, you will walk in new obedience, even as you say to yourself, I cannot possibly walk this path. Greater heights of repentance and faith are yours because he will take you there. Not yourself. Him. And so when you fail, come to God. Come back to God. Behold the beauty of your king. Let's pray.